All right, welcome back to the 1% in Health. We've got Clarissa and Nash. Hey, guys. Uh, it's the beginning of May. We're excited. There's sunlight. There's not snow on the ground. We're able to <laughs> make it here without major storms. Uh, we still have light in the uh, in the room. Sunshine's still beaming here. It's 7 o'clock at night, so it's, it's a good day. Before we get into the podcast, again, trigger warnings. We talk about sensitive topics. Please seek a professional when we uh, discuss conditions and and uh, get into those topics. Uh, we are just peers and and live with the experiences that we talk about. All right. So my story, part two. It's been a it's been a rough two days for me. I'm switching the time I take medication for bipolar, and I started a weight loss medication, and it's messing with my with my rhythm and my cycles and everything. So it's been it's been a doozy for the last two days for me. I took I actually took off the day of work today. I'm telling that to kind of as a precursor of what I'm going to get into in my story, but I have to be very, very stringent. Is that, is that the word stringent? Very uh, meticulous. And when I take, when I take my medication at what time, and I haven't missed my medication since 2008, not one dose, not one day. I've had uh, a nightmare having to go to doctors for all those years, get the refills, Get, uh, make sure I take them. Make sure when I travel, make sure I have all my medication in my bag. And I've, it's it's one of the few things I've been perfect. It's actually the only thing I've been perfect in since 2008 is taking my medicine and being healthy from it. And I say that because I don't have many depression episodes. I'll have small depression episodes. I'm mostly manic in my bipolar. And if I don't go up, I don't fall. So I've kept myself from getting manic, too manic, and I sleep well, and I have my cycle. And uh, so for the last two days, I'm always humbled by people that have to live with depression. It's just, you go from wanting to conquer the world where you want to do podcasts, you want to do music, you want to do acting, you want to do business, you want to be a good family member, and then depression hits and all that's gone. It's like, What's, what's my purpose again? And why am I trying to do all this stuff? And why am I staying busy? Like I have no motivation. So I've dealt with that for the last day and a half. And uh, it was a reminder of, of how careful we have to be with what we eat, Mm -hmm. with what we, uh, with our medications. If we take medication, if we have a condition, how exact we have to be in adhering to the doctor and to what we know. So anyways, that's a long introduction, but it gets into... Uh, when I started uh, suffering from depression, we in last episode where I talked about going to the ward and uh, going through that spell, I, I went I w- went on to graduate um, from South Lakes High School after that situation, and I had to get ready for college. I was going to try to play football, so I, I practiced a little bit that summer, but my arm was still pretty broken and torn, so my hopes were kind of dashing because it just wasn't getting better. I was in shape but my arm was in, in bad. Anyways, I got into college, uh, Rick's College, which which is now BYU-Idaho, because of football. They allowed me to come early and, and be admitted. And um, that's not saying much because you didn't have to be like a 4.0 student to get into Rick's. But got I had a really bad ACT score. I took it one time, and let's just say it was in the teens. I'm not like Cl- Clarissa, you were up in 28, right? Yeah. Anyways, so I got into college. I go to college. I show up at college with a pistol, a bag of marijuana. I'm ready to play football with drugs and a, and a pistol going to a Mormon college. I thought I was hood or something. Um, 
pretty embarrassing uh, to be honest with you, but um, end up getting there co- to college. And uh, I, I room with a bunch of football players in this house. It's about a mile and a half off campus and uh, they're partying. We're all partying. Uh, we're going to we're getting ready to go to football practice uh, in a few days. And um, we're camping out at the uh, sand dunes and everybody's drinking and smoking marijuana. And, and I was shocked at the, uh, the number of players on the team that were not living the standards of BYU-Idaho Ricks back then. I have a question. What yep. year was this? 1963. Just kidding. What? <laughs> I'm guessing, what is this, 89, 90? I don't know. Yeah, this was 90. All right, yeah. 1992, just before they just got rid of the stage got, for the they listeners. Got, and yeah. yeah. They got rid of football and sports at, at uh, Rick's BYU-Idaho, probably because of people like us. But anyways, I get put on probation within like the first week of being at the college. They called me in and we had to explain. I, I didn't know you couldn't leave the town and go sleep at the sand dunes without letting the school know that you were leaving town and sleeping sleeping over. And there were male and female at the sand dunes and that was a no-no. And they found out there was alcohol and other stuff. So I had to uh, go before a panel and and show how the marijuana was passed in the car and how it skipped over me. And uh, people got kicked out. I got put on probation. And then football was starting. And the first day of football, I I was pretty much, I think, depressed because I had a really bad attitude. I knew my arm was a, was a bummed, and I didn't want to go in there and tape up my shoulder because they were going to know that I was injured. Um, so it was like this false uh, narrative that I was li- living. I was drinking at a school that you're not supposed to drink. I'm breaking rules. I've got a pistol. I had a bag of marijuana and here I am trying to go to a Mormon school and play football. I was oblivious, obviously. Anyways, first day of practice, I show up and the all the quarterbacks and running backs and receivers were together and I was doing my thing. My arm was weak. I wasn't throwing very well. I was really disappointed in what I was, how I was performing on the field. I could run and I could keep up with everybody and I was doing well athletically, but when it came to throwing, it was pretty weak. Anyways, at the end of practice, everybody's doing their hooting and hollering big circle and, and doing the football thing. And I was just like, not feeling it. I was like, what am I doing here? I don't even like this sport really that much anymore. And I don't really care to jump in a circle with a bunch of dudes yelling and being all pumped up. And I, that's how bad my attitude was. I just didn't feel, mm-hmm. feel part of the team. I was off, obviously suffering from depression. I was being an idiot with my choices and I was not feeling it. So I quit. I went and put my helmet in the, uh, in the uh, locker and I walked off and that caused a lot of ripples with a lot of people. I was ungrateful for for the opportunity I had, I threw it away and it got me into school and no one knew I was hurt. They just probably saw a kid with bad attitude and walked off the field and quit. They didn't know what's going on. They didn't know I was living a little thug life and, and having depression and that I was injured. So anyways, that caused a lot more depression. I uh, started school. Um, it was one of the, it started snowing soon within that semester. I think it was one of the worst years in, in, in Rick's for snow was like a 30 year record breaking snowfall. And I was a mile and a half off campus and I had to, I had a bike. I didn't have a car. So I had to ride a bike to campus. I literally went to class three or four times and I sat in my room. I drew like art, art on my walls. I had glow in the 
paint dark or glow on glow on glow in the dark uh paint i painted like mountain scenes and stars and like w- weird stuff and uh and i sat in my room and i avoided school um i did get a girlfriend she was the release society president in one of the wards and we had some pretty big fights i was probably controlling and depressive and i don't know it was a really really bad time for me there were people getting there were continued parties and people getting put in jail for overnight for having alcohol and being under age it was just really weird here i am at this mormon college trying thinking i want to clean up my life and go on a mission and coming out of high school as a addict on on marijuana and drinking all the time the, the two lives i had to make some choices really quick so never went to school i got like a 1.7 my first semester i i went to i did go to uh, creative writing in in a few times and i actually loved creative writing in in college and it was one of my favorite classes of all time and not just computers but creative writing and that was the highlight of of school for me was a little bit of writing but it was a big blur it was dark it was depressive i ruined my opportunity i threw away football but there was something great that happened and that was my desire to want to clean my life up change who i was and go on a mission and i knew i had to clean my life up a year before going on a mission cuz back then there was kind of a cut off date of you know morality and drugs and alcohol and stuff like that you had to show a period of time where you abstain from those things and i did abstain from immoral things while at rick so i was i did change that aspect um i just needed to stop drinking and and smoking marijuana and i finally did and i made the decision to turn myself in to the bishop i told him everything and he was a great men- mentor to me and i went through the process of repentance the first part of the process of just going in and telling and getting put on probation and and uh you know doing things that you can you know some things you can't do when you're going through that process we don't need to get into that here but i my desire to serve and clean up my life was great and i put a lot of effort over the next 9 to 10 months i actually left school there were temptations that were, were were crazy i had opportunities to be immoral and i didn't and i made those choices even in the midst of a lot of temptation and and as i wanted to clean my life up it seemed like those uh temptations became that there were more opportunities to to do things like that and and uh, i was being tested i felt and it showed me that i was actually on a good course and the right course and so i poured into what i was supposed to prepare for for a mission that was read the four books back then i don't know if they still do that but uh, uh jesus tell me just the christ um, and yeah jesus christ and all those four books i w- i just dove into them i read them all did they read, call that the missionary library yeah something like I think that that's what they called that don't you love this awesome light that's coming through the window here i do so i read those books i abstained i quit drinking i stopped smoking marijuana i was sitting in my bedroom at home trying to figure out what i wanted to do for a job so that i could help pay for the mission and i didn't go to school that whole winter or from january to june i uh, was getting clean sober and ready and i read and read and read and read and i wasn't a reader so i was taking it serious there there was some time in february or march of 93 where i needed to know if what i was doing was right if i'm going to go and leave everything behind for 2 years i need to know 
you know, is there, is there truth in what I'm going to be doing for the next two years? Am I going to go out in the world and talk about something and represent that? So I dove into prayer and I had a moment where it came to me, the answer that, yes, you're doing the right thing. And yes, Jesus uh, is Christ and you will be a good servant. And um, it was an awesome moment I had in my life when I was, what would I have been, 18, 18 or 19, 18 at that time. So I dove in even more. And until August, I think it was August, I got my mission call to Sao Paulo, Brazil. And uh, I was ready to go on a mission. I was had a testimony. I changed my life and turned it around. And uh, I didn't hit the mission unprepared. I was as prepared as anybody could be prepared. I took it as serious as working out for football. I'm an all or nothing type person. That's what I've kind of learned about myself. And I felt really good about going into that mission. My depression subsided, whatever I was, you know, my my guilt and all the stuff that I had to go through with, with uh, coming to knowledge of all the ignorant things I did and the lives I hurt and the opportunities I blew. I kind of got over that and forgave myself and asked for forgiveness from certain people that I felt like I had to. And when I hit the mission, I hit it hard. I was going to Sao Paulo, Brazil, went to the MTC in, in Provo, Utah, and we had to stay there for three months. And uh, because of the visa problems getting into Brazil, so I, there was an extra month where we didn't have a lot to do. But the MTC called me as an assistant to the president with another amazing elder who was gave up a million-dollar contract to play for the Minnesota Twins baseball. Him and I were assistance to the president for that last month. So I felt, I felt like, I felt like I was accomplishing something. I was learning Portuguese. I was, I was progressing in life. I was doing well. I got called to a nice little position to help other uh, missionaries and train missionaries. The language was coming naturally. I took French and Spanish in high school. So that helped with some Portuguese. I also set a goal to never speak English when I hit Sao Paulo, Brazil. I think I hid so much from everybody that a lot of people didn't know what a okay. disaster I was. I think there was mm -hmm. some underlining um, gratitude um, and and they were, my mom's never judged me. My dad's never, no, they've always supported me. Even, even later yeah. on in my marriage, when I was a full-blown drug addict, my mom never, ever judged me or put me to shame, ever. She was always had open arms. So I so want to say must they have been were proud of me then. Well, I, probably. Yeah. I mean, the year, yeah. the year before I'm in a ward, right? And they hadn't seen manic side, a manic side of me. So for me not to be in a ward and, and following the path of what she thought I was probably following when, when, uh, cause she wrote in the book how she was scared that I was following some of the decisions that my father had made. So I'm, I'm sure she, she my mom was, didn't have a lot of emotion. So I can't remember like this, these, any moments where like, oh my gosh, Dave, you are doing amazing. You know, I don't, I don't remember that, but I must have given you a hug before she pushed into the, yeah, I'm sure they were center. super, I'm yeah. sure they were super proud, but my mom had high expectations and she, she uh, had unconditional love. So I just, I've always, I always felt comfort from her and support from no matter what I was doing in life, good or bad. Um, but I'm sure they were super proud. Yeah, um, I guess that was the point that, you know, people yeah. need to realize that unconditional love, it cures yeah. a lot of things. You got to believe, but go on. Sorry, yeah. go on. And I'm spending a lot of time on college and, and, and this, because I want to set up, set up depression and bipolar because without, without the moment 
without these moments, it's hard to get diagnosed. Like without going to the ward and without long spell, like a, a six month darkness that I was in in college, um, all those were very vital for me to uh, later on in life um, recognize the symptoms when I answered the assessment. When I went on to WebMD and answered an assessment, I was able to pinpoint these these moments in my life where I could answer yes or no to those questions. So and 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 going into the mission when I get dropped off in Brazil, and having the goal of never speaking English is a very self righteous decision that I made. And I thought I was waking up at five thirty. It's already hard enough. A mission's already hard enough. Why am I going to stress myself out with an extra hour? I used to sit in. I land in Brazil. We get put out in the uh, in the mission field, and our mission was one of the worst missions of the entire world. They kicked out like thirty or forty missionaries. I might have that a little wrong. I don't know the exact amount, but we had to have one of an, another mission president come in and kick out a bunch of missionaries and clean up the mission and have the before the new president came in and took over. So they did a mass cleanup of the mission with a lot of people were breaking the rules. And I got put with one of the, uh, one of the missionaries that just made the cut. He had Madonna pictures on the wall. He, uh, he was not obeying the rules. They'd go, they'd go to shopping malls and, and watch TV at members' houses and stuff. So when I got dropped off, there was no bed. I had a concrete floor, a blanket, no pillow. And that went on for a couple of weeks until we were able to acquire a bed. Um, but I, there was four of us in one room and then a tiny bathroom. And the room had an oven, had a, had a, and, and the preparation I put in every day, I was AP in the, in the, uh, for a month in the MTC. So I had a little bit of knowledge of, not knowledge, I had a little confidence that I could, you know, fake being a district leader, being a leader, right? Anyways, it was, I was so gung ho that, I was probably overzealous, over, I was probably self-righteous, I was hard on my missionaries, I was a rule keeper, I wasn't speaking English to anybody, I wouldn't speak English to the American missionaries, the English-speaking missionaries, even if they had a hard time communicating, I, I forced them to at least try to speak Portuguese with me because I wasn't going to answer the questions in English. For me, it worked, and I learned the language very quick, or very quickly, and I'd end up going, I ended up coming home sick, I got after 14 months, I got a parasite and uh, was dropping weight left and right and ended up coming home. So for me to study and be prepared in the beginning of my mission like that really served me well because I was able to put a lot of quality missionary work into those 14 months. I had some awesome experiences on the mission. They're in the book. There's one about a little lady that fed us and the miracle that happened, us finding her. That was an amazing story. And that really set the precedence of faith. Um, in my mission, having faith and and relying on what you have around you and being able to survive. We, there were many, many bright moments in my mission. And I was, when I, when I came around to having to go home, I was devastated. I actually had written my family and I'd, I'd get packages like once a month or every six weeks. So there was, there were no, we couldn't call. There was no, you get letters sporadically, you care package maybe, but you were kind of cut off from the world and you and your companion were out out in the jungle, sometimes out in the city, depending on where you were. I hope I wasn't, but I might be over doing that. But I served a good mission and I put my heart into it. I put my work ethic into it. My goals were high. Um, I didn't sleep a lot. I was able to survive on, I really didn't get to sleep till 12 or one every night, but, I, but we exhausted ourselves so much during the day that I was able to sleep at least 
but signs of mania were really creeping up at that time and the extreme nature that I had. Um, I came home for three months, went back out to Pawtucket, Rhode Island, which was the Hartford, Connecticut mission. And that was very hard to get go back on a mission after being home for three months. I even had a girlfriend in between the time I was, I, they gave me a, a honorable release. And I actually said, well, I want to go back on a mission because I feel like an absolute failure. I failed football. I failed the mission. I hear I am homesick. I had lost a bunch of weight. I got rid of the amoebas. And I said, well, I'm going to go back on a mission. So I actually got another call. I got first call from Benson and my second mission call from Hunter, which was cool because in a two-year time frame, I had two mission calls from two different prophets. So I get on this airplane. I'm the only one on the airplane with, this, with the uh, stewardess. Yeah. I'm thinking I'm going to die. You know what? But I, I was actually felt a little comfort because what a what a good time to go out, going on a mission, and it's only going to take out me and the stewardess. Anyways, that's some of my bipolar thinking. But I had it back then. I, like, why did I think I was going to die? Just because I was only only the only one on an airplane. It's just kind of weird. Um, I land. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to go out and knock doors again. I got to polish up my Portuguese. What am I doing? I just had so many doubts. It's a different kind. It was a a different Portuguese. They made me district leader right away. And, and, uh, and I had a companion that was listening to heavy metal. He was a total tool. And uh, I'm doing push-ups in the morning. I hurt my neck. I can't move my neck. So I called the mission presence office. Hey, I need to go to a doctor. I'm, I'm in a really rough bind here with my neck. So I go to the doctor. They put me on a muscle relaxer. I go back to the mission president's home to spend the night. And I have a serious migraine. And I've, my migraines were creeping up again. And uh, the uh, mission president's wife gave me one of her medications for migraine. And uh, so I had some muscle relaxer going on. I had some migraine medicine going on. And I got super high, like feeling really good. And uh, in the book, I talk about this. I don't want to sexualize it or anything, but I made a mistake that night. And I hadn't done that with what teenage boys do. I hadn't done that and grown men. But I hadn't done that in a couple of years. I felt the biggest shame come over me. Uh, here I am high and I made a mistake and I'm going to take my life. That was the first thought that came to my mind. So I went and got the bottle of pills, muscle relaxers, and I took them, all of them. And, and then I ran outside. There was about couple feet of snow. I had, I, I think I was able to put my tennis shoes on, but I didn't have socks. I had a t-shirt and my jeans and I disappeared. And uh, all I remember is running towards a light. That's it. I just, there was this big beam of light that I remember that all went dark. And I remember sitting on a bench. I ran towards light, remember sitting down and then nothing. I woke up the next morning to a uh, priest dangling a cross over my head and blessing me. I said, what is going on? And um, I guess I had blacked out or went into a mini coma or whatever. They, uh, they, they, uh, no one, no one knew who I was. There was no one there to help me. There was just this priest and doctors and they were trying to figure out who I was and what I was doing and all this. They had pumped my stomach with charcoal. So I had the taste of charcoal in my mouth. I could, when every time I burped, I could taste char char uh, charcoal, but I think I blacked out again because when I woke up eight hours or 10 hours later, my parents were there. So I don't know how, I guess, they were, somebody was calling the hospital, found out I was there. And uh, my parents were about a 10 hour drive. So from a certain time to whenever that night, it could even have been the next day. I'm not sure on the exact details, but my parents showed up and took me home. And uh, I felt like a failure again because I couldn't serve a mission. 
in the first place. I couldn't serve the second mission. I attempted suicide. I remember waking up in the hospital and absolutely being devastated that life continued. I did not. And, and here's what I mean by that. I didn't want only physical life, this earthly life to continue, but I woke up with the knowledge that there was something beyond death. I had an experience uh, the light I saw, the what I felt, what I saw. I knew that life continued on, and that pissed me off. I did not want existence, period. I didn't want my spirit to exist. I didn't want earthly life. I didn't want to face what I had just what I had just done. And I and I actually at that moment realized that we don't die. We transition, and you just better get used to progressing because you're either going backwards or forward. You're progressing backwards or you're progressing forward. And so I had to make a choice to once again forgive myself, get back up. What is wrong with me? And why would I take my life over that? So I don't I don't think I got counseling. I don't remember getting help. I just got scurried back home and I got I had to go to a mission to report my mission to the local leadership, the the 12 counselors and the in the state presidency. And that's kind of where life really fell apart for me. And here I was. Let me ask you this really quick. How did they react to it? How did they treat you? Well, let me there's there's amazing things going on at that time. Okay. And and then and then what happened later on that summer was is what devastated a, a lot of of what I've went through for a decade in my marriage, but everybody I I don't think any anybody really knew that I attempted my life and why I came home. I, I maybe they did, but it, no one talked about it and there was no therapy or anything like that. Again, no one knew. I didn't know I was bipolar or I don't even know if I was at that time. It just could have been severe depression. The ward, the attempt on my life, there was no formal engagement with doctors from those two events. But again, they were mm -hmm. crucial in when I'd get diagnosed later on. But here's what, here's, here's, here's bipolar. There can be devastation in your life and there's on the other side, so many amazing things. Because when you have energy, you get a lot of stuff done. So I actually came home and I met some. I met up with some of my friends. I ended up uh, baptizing uh, a redskinette, a, a girl that was a cheerleader on the Reds, now the Commanders. And uh, she got baptized three weeks later after I met her. We were on a date. And she said she was looking for Jesus Christ, his church. And I was like, I just want to be on a date with a red skinette, and you're talking about Jesus Christ. And she's an amazing mother, and she uh, lives up in Idaho all the way from Virginia. She married a guy, an <laughs> awesome family. And then I end up uh, baptizing another one of my uh, wide receivers. One of my good friends uh, got baptized from our, uh, from our football team, and then a, a third one. So like three wide receivers got baptized. I was able to baptize a, a red skinette. I don't know what they're called now, but so – it gave me a little bit of wind that and and purpose. Here I failed on my mission, but amazing things were happening at life at home in 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 talking about Jesus Christ and 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 the church and and having people get baptized in the church. It it gave me a sense of belonging that that I wasn't a total failure. So I don't I don't know if I've ever told those people that, but they kind of helped save my my, uh, you know, the way I thought about myself, like it gave me purpose. Their, their purpose gave me purpose. Right. Right. Um, and those I, are, those are tender mercies. That's what, you know, yeah, we call those in my family are tender mercies. Uh, I say this just because you fail at something doesn't mean you're a failure. You're just trying. Right. Welcome to life. You know, God doesn't need <laughs> well, perfect people to do good things. Yeah, Look at and you. these were, 
You went through all this. You're baptizing people. Yeah. You're they were John crucial the Baptist. Moment. They were, sure. Yeah. I, 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 I learned that these were extreme things that I, that I was going through. And again, would help me later on diagnose. But I had so much fun that summer. Went on a lot of dates, and I was a moral good kid. And I, I loved uh, who I became and the changes that it made. Even though I was, you know, I wasn't really aware of what happened that night and why on a clinical level. And I was so used to extreme things happening in my life that it just kind of blink of an eye. But anyways, when I got, got home off my mission, I, I went into the uh, room and presented my mission and they said, congratulations. And when I walked out of the room, one of the high counselors there, who was the devil in, 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 in a wolf in sheep's clothing, offered me a job. And uh, I took the job. It was a high level job and um, for a very reputable company. And there were other members of the church in that company. And he basically groomed me for three months. And he had, he had done this before. He had groomed other return missionaries and mm-hmm. would talk, say he had a porn problem and he needed help. And he'd call me into his office and, and show me porn magazines, try to get me to look at them to help him and be there for him and comfort him. And he literally spent three months grooming and, you know, would, would try to Horrible. get me to Get, try to get me to go down to the locker room, go jogging around the building for lunch so that we take our clothes off and he would be in the, in the room, uh, you know, bug, he'd bug me for wearing a towel, just all kinds of grooming tactics. Right. So anyways, he, he, uh, we end up going on a trip. We end up at, at the most incredible hotel in New York city. And he says, there's only one room. There's not two rooms available. So we had to share a room. Anyways, he, he, goes on and and uh, and uh puts on the porn on the tv and i ignore it i turn anyways it goes this goes on for a couple hours i'm asleep i wake up and he's he's attacking me and uh and i put a stop to it and i go back to bed wake up quit quit the next day call him call hr turn his ass in and call the church turn him in there. And then I started the process for about a month of lawyers, lawyers and all that crap. It all happened so quick. And I was going to, I was going to play football at George Mason and I got accepted and I actually went to some practices there and I was going to work for that company. I was going to play football and I was going to go to college there. And it totally disrupted my entire life. And I stuffed, I stuffed all the emotions and the abuse deep down and and it wasn't the attack the attack stopped there was nothing major that happened but it was the grooming and the and the whole setup and the conversations and everything that would wear on me throughout the years and probably still do today but so there's there's you know Nash my story is not as graphic and as, as horrific as 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 yours mine which everybody no but it's still it. a tragedy yeah, nobody it's still tragedy it's still a tragedy yeah, mine, you mine, have somebody yeah, mine, trusted did that to you. Yeah, and oh, I was at an older age too, so I felt like, what yeah. am I like? I'm I'm at an older age. Why couldn't I have seen this quicker? Why? What am I doing? But I was able to stop it because I was at probably an older age. But I I kind of stuffed it down. I quit that college. I said I'm out of here. To you know, and it wasn't the fault of the church. I don't blame the church. It wasn't the fault of the corporation, I don't blame the corporation. It was that individual. And I had actually put a stop to his grooming and, and hiring of, of return missionaries and put a whole stop to that in his entire life. I was the last one for that to happen too. So I was, I, I didn't recognize that at the time, but I stopped a monster. Hopefully if he's still out there, I saw that. this little thing and I'll throw this out there really quick. It said, God didn't wake you up today just for 
no reason. God woke you up today because somebody you don't know needed you. And you Mm -hmm. saying that is true. You probably saved a lot of young men who may not have been as strong as you. And he would have just destroyed their lives for his entertainment. So whether you know it or not, you're pretty freaking heroic for saying that. Actually, actually, a lot of courage. Thank you. I actually saw him in the airport a couple of times. I sat down in first class. I don't know why I was flying first class. I never fly first class, but I was flying first class. He he sat down in front of me and I sat down right behind him and he didn't know. And I tapped on his shoulder and basically just, you know, gave him the look and uh, I'm not scared of you. And you're sitting in front of me and, and it was really not awkward for me for some reason. I just sat there for that plane ride. And then I saw him again in the airport and I just looked at him like, I'll destroy you if you ever do this again. Right. So, you know, and I felt bad for his family. One night he dropped me off and his wife and kids were there to greet him at the door. And he said his car was broken. So I had to take him home and he pulled out magazines on the ride home. He was just a piece of trash. And, uh, and I'm the one that had to live with that crap. And he lied to the church at first. The truth finally came out. I had to like play this game, right? I had to play games Mm -hmm. with who I dated, all the lies because he was lying. And so, you know, it was it was a tragic event for me to deal with the priesthood that way, yeah. and I'd already I'd already had a hard time with my father and in the priesthood that he didn't re- really represent well. And I, my grandfathers were great men, but I just I didn't have a real strong priesthood role model. And for this to keep happening, not happening, it's when it really started happening to me. This really set off a lot of things where I got offended. By, by priesthood holders. And I didn't drop out of the church. I went running back to Rick's at the time, BYU, Idaho, and I stuffed it all down. And I met my wife uh, the week before school. I was, I think I was going to play football again. I, I don't remember. Yeah, I was going to play football again. And um, I was there again early. And uh, I went on a car ride or we went down the river floating on that day with some of the football players and one of the football players knew um, some girls that were in a car on the road that we were driving and we followed them home and uh, that's when I met my wife we went into her apartment he knew her and we got introduced and I actually when I walked into the door and she was on the other side of the room um I had an amazing feeling and it was love at first sight. I know it's cheesy to say, but it happened. And, and she was like no, six not. feet tall. She's six feet tall and absolutely gorgeous. And, and uh, I felt some, which I'd never felt before that quick. And anyways, we went on a few dates and then she dogged me cause she liked somebody else. And I kind of gave up. <laughs> I kind of gave up on girls after, after she dogged me. So she was actually, this is going to sound really bad. I don't care. But she was the first girl to turn me down, like majorly turn me down. And so I was kind of devastated. And so I didn't date. I, I said, I'm taking a break. I'm just going to focus on school. I was doing good things and I was in a good mindset. And, you know, her not wanting to date me, I, it, kind of, it kind of pushed me to progress. And uh, anyways, a couple weeks later, she comes knocking on my door and asks, asks, asks to go out again because the guy dogged her. So I was second choice, which thank you. Thank you. Uh, your name starts with a D. Thank you for poor, poor Jen. If he would have 
not dogged her, she probably would have had a much better life. But I stop it in the second. I'm the sloppy seconds. Oh my gosh. Um, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm glad that she came knocking because we dated and we had a awesome, awesome. Can I say courtship? I'm so old. Yeah, that I'm gonna. Say, yeah, sure. no, that's I'm good. Gonna, that's good. I'm, I love I'm that. Gonna, I'm almost that fifty years old. So anyways, her parents had found out who I was. One of her, there's, there's, I'm not going to go into that story. I'm just going to probably edit that. But uh, my bishop ended up telling my father-in-law everything I did in high school, her about me, because I was a nightmare and I was a bad kid. And I actually never put my wife on the other side. I never sat on the other side saying, come on, you need to marry me. You need to date me. I'm not that person anymore. I always understood. And I said, hey, they're right. I was a disaster and, and I do have issues. And and if you're not up for that, then that's fine. We'll we'll break up. So I never, and I don't think I was manipulating by doing that. I was honest and I understood. But we went through the worst courtship with other people. We had a fantastic one with ourselves. We used to stay up in the car all night. The windows would get fogged up, not from kissing, but talking. We talk all night long by this park, and the windows would be fogged up, and it probably looked like we were making out. And cops are probably like, "What are you guys doing?" But we talked and we asked questions and we said, what if this scenario, what if this scenario and how would you be then this, that it was awesome. And we love kissing. Like we could make out for literally an hour, two hours if we needed to, our lips would all be all puffy and, and, uh, and we were good kids and we wanted to go beyond the 11 o'clock curfew and kiss. Right. Who wants to, Hey, I'm going to throw this o'clock? in here really quick. I've, I've always said the saying, what God puts together, no man can ever tear apart. So once again, yeah. you went through that little test where, God put you two together and you had your yeah. bishop and whoever talking smack and whoever else. And here for the listeners, are you still married to her? I am. And, and we're, I'm going to share one more story and then we're going to cut it here. I didn't even get through college. So Bishop squills on me. My mom writes him a nasty letter. Good for I don't mom. know if he got in trouble, but my mom stuck up for me once again. And then my father-in-law, who we have a great relationship now, and he's an amazing guy. He he made a few phone calls to my mission president and other people and said, Hey, do you think he would be like this if this and that? And there was a letter that I had wrote that got analyzed and there was a bunch of stuff. There was just like the, there were like a lot of, there were a lot of people coming at me and uh, Jen and I stuck it out. She ended up, uh, we ended up leaving school and they basically gave her an ultimatum. If you're going to date them, then we're not going to support it. You're going to have to, elope so we eloped i went back to virginia i had her come live with us and we made plans and then finally her parents accepted us getting married and they held a little little uh, dinner for us at the joseph smith center it wasn't anything big there was no big wedding we did get married in the temple and we were worthy we were absolutely worthy to be married in the temple and for the listeners not that don't know what that means there's high standards that you have to do to get married in the temple and here i am under attack just gotten groomed, um, was a drug addict, was an alcoholic, a, a budding alcoholic, severe depression. And I changed my life around and Jen and I worked our butts off to, to be worthy and be married in the temple. And we got married in the temple and we were, and we deserved it. Now, when we walked out of that temple, there was a very dark cloud over the temple and there wasn't another cloud in the sky. So I actually wrote a song about it, uh, Black Clouds Over White Castles. <laughs> and that was a precursor for Jen. Oh boy, you just got married for eternity to this dude. And I'm going to do a little forecasting, put a black sh- black cloud over the temple. But it was a great time in my life, except for the battles and the battles with the priesthood, the battles with being offended. 
I was in love with Jen. She was in love with me. How old were you when you got married? I was 22. Okay. And how old yeah. was Jen? I've done two podcasts and I'm not even past 22, but you guys did the same thing. <laughs> so Jen was 20. Okay. Jen was 20. She's two years younger than me. So a lot of stuff had happened. And I, I'm glad I spent a lot of time on things that helped me get diagnosed later on in life. Usually a traumatic event happens like abuse. You go through, you know, a ward, a psychiatry ward or something usually happens, or they'll ask if that happened. I had major depressive moments. I was over the top. I was a talker. I was manipulative. I was narcissistic. I was all the things that later on in life, you need to kind of check the box if you're manic and if you're depressive, which then makes up the bipolar. I think there's something to say right here, though, that in the years of development, it has been shown that teenagers become very self-centered because that's how their brain develops. So I think what you're saying is you had these tendencies, but then as I'm sure as we get going, you know, further into your twenties, they didn't go away as your brain was finally done developing. So I think there's something to be said about making sure that you don't like jump the gun so much on a diagnosis. If you're still in that developing stage, like just kind of watch it and be mindful of it, but be careful putting a label on something too early. And no one, no one was putting labels on me and no, I didn't do any self-discovery until four or five years later. And so I, I appreciate you saying that because there are normal teenage things and there's, there's reactions to trauma and environmental things. It's very important to go through all those things as well and live life. Even if we're sick or we're experiencing stuff, that's what life to me is about. And I don't regret a lot of things. The, the thing I regret the most is putting my wife through the pain. But yeah. the choices that I made and the and the things I got into and what happened to me was all a part of making me who I am today. So I, I mm-hmm. love that, you know, don't. And, and it was comforting later in life to get a diagnosis of bipolar because maybe there is something more than just me being an idiot. But I do agree. If you're, if you're, if you're labeled too quick and you, you think it's a death sentence, then you'd stop living your life. So yeah. Yep. Anyways, I think we'll end there. Sorry for the listeners to just stay in a couple Sorry. of minutes. Sorry. Literally. Jeez. Well, that, that I only got through. This is good though, because no, this is good because those are very formative years. And those experiences, like you said, are what were key points in your diagnosis. So when we get to your diagnosis, like we'll be able to understand there's so much depth in any sort of condition like that, especially ones that are diagnosed later in life, like where we really understand them later in life. And so I think, I mean, I was hooked this whole time. So I really have enjoyed it. I appreciate it. I do too. I think it's so important because somebody out there right now is going, that's what I'm going through. I, I, I don't know what to do, but he just explained my life. Maybe. Well, yeah. Or go, Oh, that's not okay. And I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's super important. So of course, I think your story is hugely important. My whole purpose in my businesses and what I want to do these things for is to help people truncate the time it takes to get help. So knowledge, Mm -hmm. wisdom, seeing a doctor, getting with your your family members, your support group, and and making it a shorter experience to get health and not go 20 years before you get diagnosed of devastating everything in your life. So that's a big passion of this podcast and what I do. So, yeah, yeah, if you go back and listen to anybody that we've interviewed, that's one of their biggest things is that they're sharing about their condition now so that people have a faster diagnosis time. You know, Mark Seneca talked about that and so did Albert as well in 
our other episodes. Yeah. Just a plug All if you right, want to go you, back everybody. and listen. Great episode. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thank you, everybody. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys.